Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and related to Israel and give you a window to look through about aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program when we're also going to share some exciting offers and opportunities. And please share this with other people who you know will also find it of interest. I'm pleased to introduce a real special guest and friend today, Joel Rosenberg. Joel is a New York Times bestselling author with 16 novels and another four nonfiction books. When I say that he's one of the most talented writers I know, it's true on two levels. He is just talented as a writer, and you can read my review of his latest book, Enemies and Allies, on all Israel News, townhall.com, and other sites. But I also have the genuine pleasure of knowing Joel personally, and I'm a big fan. So he is one of the most talented writers that I know. In 2020, Joel created two new websites geared at an evangelical audience, All Israel News and All Arab News, where he and his staff skillfully put out content that helps a particularly Christian audience to understand the nuances of life in Israel and news from Israel and the Middle East from a Christian perspective. I know that I'm not the only Orthodox Jew who looks at these sites for information, even though I'm not the target audience, because the content is that good and credible. In this context, Joel is not only a brilliant author, but a journalist with the highest integrity. Drawing on his Jewish ancestry, Joel and his wife, Lynn, and four sons made Aliyah to Israel, receiving citizenship, and they now live in Jerusalem. His sons have served in the army, and they've become an integral part of life in Israel among among the more than 9 million other Israelis like myself. It's rare that you'll find somebody as politically astute, well-connected, and having, having been given the grace of access to the highest levels of leadership throughout Israel and the Arab world, as well as the White House. Because Joel is as thoughtful as he is, this gives him unique insight and a platform to explain to millions of others what in the world is going on here and why it's so important. Joel, welcome. It is a real, real true pleasure to have you join me today on Inspiration from Zion to help unpack some of the issues that have happened in our region recently and looking ahead at 2022. Well, Jonathan, it's great to be with you. Really an honor. And shalom from uh, Jerusalem. You and I are, uh, are talking to each other in, the, in two of the most important Jewish cities in all of human history. Uh, of course, uh, Jerusalem being our eternal capital. But Ephrat, or uh, Ephrata, we, we say in, uh, in the Bible from Micah chapter 5, is, uh, is super important, uh, right on the outskirts of um, the, the hometown of uh, King David and of, and, and of Jesus, whom I regard so right. dearly, uh, the city of Bethlehem. So anyway, great to chat with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. 
Thank you. Me too. And I and I know that this is going to be enlightening for so many people because you have a real special way of unpacking these complicated issues. In addition to inspiration from Zion, another Genesis 123 Foundation program, Run for Zion, is the first program uniquely for Christians centered around the Jerusalem Marathon, creating meaningful and lasting experiences. We look forward to having you be able to join us in person soon, but now are offering you a way to connect from wherever you are in the world through virtual tours, webinars, and briefings. For information or to register, please go to runforzion.com. Join Run for Zion and bless Israel with every Um, step. Let's set the stage, though, um, specifically uh, coming maybe from your book. And and this is a... uh, unambiguous plug it is required reading everyone should read enemies and allies um i don't get anything out of that other than knowing that other people are getting the benefit of of the knowledge and insight that that you provide i don't Um, get anything out of it either because we my wife and i turned the rights to enemies and allies this new non-fiction book over to the all israel news all arab news nonprofit so that we could use it as effectively as possible well all all the more reason that people should should uh absorb that and grasp that you know i i went to college my major is in middle east middle eastern studies and even reading the book it it helps me just living here i always say i live in my own petri dish so do you and and it helped so much for me to clarify uh a a lot of the issues so you wrote the book as part of the, the incredible unique meetings that you um had that you led evangelical delegations to meet with some of the most significant leaders in the Arab world today. Now, I don't want to give away all of the details of the book. People should read it. Um, but can you share, just on a personal level, what are some of the most remarkable things that you personally experienced during these meetings and conversations? Uh, happy to. Um, and there's so much in there in Enemies and Allies that I'm not worried about, you know, giving too much away. So we'll, we'll give a, we'll give some away here. Um, look, Enemies and Allies was released in September of 2021 um, to really to mark the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks against the United States. And to ask the question, you know, 20 years after the worst radical Islamist terrorist attacks in in all of uh, American history, uh, where are we? Who are our allies in the region? Who are our enemies? And and how have they changed, right? Al-Qaeda was the number one Correct. Worst enemy 20 years ago, but Iran and it, and it being so close to the nuclear uh, weapons capability that it now is, is clearly the dominant uh, threat today. And, and ISIS, which was a huge threat um, just five, six, seven years ago, you know, literally engaged in genocide against Christians, against Yazidis, against and, and slaughtering even more Muslims than Christians and Yazidis. Correct. Uh, a huge threat now, now not as much. And so they're still there. But what makes the book unique, and you alluded to it, is that I'm not just sort of giving my analysis from, you know, an armchair and saying, um, well, here's what I've read, this is what I think. I'm taking the reader into the motorcades, into the palaces, into uh, meet the, the most influential, controversial consequential leaders in the region, right? You're meeting uh, the most controversial leader among um, the moderate Arab allies of the United States, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. He's never 
He's never been interviewed for a book. Mine is the first. He's never uh, sat down with evangelical leaders, nor has any Saudi leader ever, but he sat down with me twice for two hours at a time. Yeah. He's never um, opened up about what he believes and, and where he's trying to take his country. Now, I'm, I'm honest. He's made a lot of mistakes, and there's a lot of criticism against him, and I walk it all through. But I, I take you into the room. The conversations we had uh, were mostly, not entirely, but mostly on the record. And I, I take you into Abu Dhabi, the capital of the United Arab Emirates, two years before Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed famously makes peace with Israel, brokered by President Trump on uh, August 13th, 2020. Two years before, he told me and our evangelical delegation, again, the first that had ever been invited to meet with the leadership at such a senior level, he said, I'm ready to make peace, Joel, and this is why. And the, the challenge for us at the time was that that entire conversation for two hours was off the record. Ah. We were sitting on the biggest bombshell of the region. Uh, that's probably the wrong term, but the uh, you know, biggest line <laughs> that, pe- that another Arab state, in that case, the third after Egypt and Jordan, was about ready to make peace and was just looking for the right moment and how to structure it. And we, we kept our word. We didn't release it. But now that the story's out, um, my, my book, uh, Enemies and Allies, is the first and from uh, at the moment that we record this, it's still the only English book, uh, English language book that tells the inside story of uh, the Abraham Accords. How did they come about? Uh, of course, uh, Ambassador David Friedman's book is imminent, and I love it, and everybody should read it. And uh, so, um, and, but anyway, you're meeting with King Abdullah, whom I've met five times, the King of Jordan. Uh, you meet with uh, President el-Sisi of Egypt. Uh, who I've met with four times and then saw him a fifth time, but but four actual in-depth conversations. So, uh, and then, you know, the, the president of Israel and the defense minister of Israel and the, uh, you know, so, and then the president of the United States uh, yes. in the Oval Office, That's right. discussing these issues about the Iranian threat and all these other things. It's not a book that's ever been written. There, there's, I, I, it's not, I'm not trying to, it's just a unique book because Nobody's ever had access. Uh, It just takes the Saudi crown prince. uh, You know, the New York Times uh, wrote a book by uh, their Middle East uh, bureau chief, um, an entire biography of MBS. And the reporter had never met him. Oh, that's crazy. Interviewed him. The Wall Street Journal, two reporters uh, based uh, or focused on the Middle East, wrote an entire biography about MBS. Never met him, never interviewed him. So, uh, it, that's w- what makes the, int- the story interesting. And it's almost like a series of magazine profiles. Uh, and it's designed for readers who are both experts, but also like, I don't really know anything, but I know that I should know things. Right. Maybe the book that helps me go into the story. It's relatable to somebody. I think when I wrote in, in the review, which you published and, and others have as well, and, and uh, obviously you much. will. I'm very, no, but I'm so happy that others published it because you really, you don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have spent uh, the better part of four years or a graduate degree to understand what goes on. And and I like your analogy as far as a series of magazine profiles, because you weave it all together. It's not just chapter one that doesn't relate to chapter two or three or four. You're weaving it all together. Now, when you, but but still unique and, and probably unique ever, 
sure ambassador friedman was had his hand on the pulse of so much of what of what happened with the abraham accords but not like it was a race but you were there first you were there in the uae hearing from the crown prince that he's ready to make peace and 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 that must have been frustrating to not be able to tell anybody no, it wasn't at the time because i well first of all i hadn't started all israel news or all arab news good point secondly i did not intend to write a book uh, i didn't go on these uh trips right. to meet them uh, the six evangelical leadership delegations to write a book. We were told by each country ahead of time, this is just quiet, off the record. We just want to build a relationship. We said, great. But it was, but literally in every country, the moment we decided, the moment our meetings were done, the palace released yeah. photos and stories, and they wanted it to become a big story um, because I think they wanted to signal to their own country to their neighbors, to to the United States, to other yes. allies, to Israel even, that they were welcoming, as, as devout Muslims, they were welcoming American evangelicals. Yes. They downplayed a little bit that I'm Israeli also, but that's not a small thing. I, um, a very senior Israeli official uh, told me after our, my first delegation to Saudi Arabia, Joel, do you realize that you're the only... Israeli citizen in history that's ever publicly met with the the senior leadership of, of Saudi Arabia. Like, like, right. yeah, Netanyahu had met in, uh, and I, and I described that in the book, uh, in uh, a remote corner of Saudi Arabia with Mike Pompeo and Yossi Cohen at the time, our, our intelligence chief in, in Israel with MBS, but that was not public. I mean, right. it, it leaked <laughs> and we reported it, but it, but it's not, there weren't photos of BB and MBS and, 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 you know, obviously there's been some other context. So this was kind of crazy. I mean, not just extraordinary or historic, it was crazy. Yeah. And, an American evangelical with the name Rosenberg with two sons who served in the IDF yeah. was in the room with me. Correct. And then my wife came on the second trip. So you had three Israelis in the room having never had a situation like that before. Well, a weird question, Joel, but I've thought about it. What would happen if I were to hop in my car, not with you, because you give, you give cover, drive down to a lot, cross over the, the Jordanian border in Aqaba, and then keep going south to the Saudi Arabian border? Would they let me in? I mean, I'm a dual well, citizen. You do need a visa now. I and see. In your case, so you have, like, in this case, you'd have to go to Amman the closest Saudi embassy, or you can go to Cairo, but mom would be probably better. Um, and, and you, you know, you'd have to apply and um, it would take a, 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 maybe a day or two, or maybe, maybe a little bit longer. I mean, we had, you know, we were at clearance from the top, but we still had sure. to go through that process. Um, because you're an American citizen, I think you could do it. I actually honestly don't know at the moment. It's a great question. And I should go ask <laughs> if an Israeli citizen without an American passport can just book a flight, and come. I mean, again, you have to get your uh, your uh, your visa first. But I believe the answer is yes. Okay, we don't have peace yet, but MBS is allowing Israeli aircraft to yes. fly over uh, Saudi territory. He, very big deal. He's supporting. I mean, the whole Saudi government has been very warm and very supportive of the Abraham Accords and their neighbors, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain in particular. Of making peace, uh, uh, Israeli President uh, uh, Isaac Bougie Herzog was just in 
uh, Abu Dhabi just a couple of days before we record this. Um, and it was front page news in a Saudi newspaper. Ah, uh, that I didn't so know. That's, that's a, big a big deal because they're signaling that they're not against this. They're clearly for it. And the big question, of course, that I raise in the book is, are the Saudis going to be next or maybe not next? Maybe there's, you know, Oman or Kuwait or Indonesia or some other country. But are the Saudis going to make peace and join the Abraham Accords? That that would be the mother of all Right. Um, peace deals. Well, I want to come to that, but before doing so, I don't want to lose track of, of, of your book. It's been nearly six months since it was published, and, right. I, and I don't know when the last edit was, but, but things have happened. I think you even referenced in the book that things were evolving even since you began the writing it, and, and, and really incredible. What's happened in the last six months, either that is that that's sort of a spin-off of of where we left off when you published in September last year, or that's now become public that you previously had to keep quiet as a as an off the record part of your conversation. Um, I think the biggest change, which I do reflect in the book, but it was just in the process of changing. As I I think it was late March uh, was uh, last year was probably the final, final edits and, you know, in the book released in September. But, but uh, the biggest change of course is president Trump leaving office and president Biden coming into office. And I mark that change in the book, noting that Biden campaigned against MBS in the 2020 presidential elections. He called uh, Saudi Arabia, a pariah state. He said there would not be business as usual. This is all reflected um, from the, uh, the the horrific and unconscionable killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi national uh, dissident who was a columnist for the Washington Post and was brutally murdered in a Saudi consulate uh, in Turkey. Uh, his body was dismembered. I mean, it's just a horrible, horrible yeah. crime. No no justification. And I, and I, it's the toughest issue that I deal with in the book when it comes to Saudi Arabia, because we were, um, we were invited for our first delegation before any of that happened months before, but our trip was going to happen as it turned out three weeks after that news broke. And we had to make a decision go or no go. So I deal with all of that. um, And who Khashoggi was and why this matters. But Biden's approach was essentially to cut off a lot of the relationship, not entirely. Um, in fact, he's been criticized by the Washington Post and others for not doing it as much as he promised. As he but, would, okay. Yeah, but, but the short version is, um, you know, Trump and his team, Secretary Pompeo, Jared Kushner, Pence and others had a very close working relationship with the Saudis and saw MBS even with his flaws, uh, as the agent for change in the region. Now, the the Khashoggi merger, uh, you know, scrambled that equation. And there were and there was howls of uh, out of Congress calling for sanctions on MBS personally and about and against Saudi Arabia and and a real diminishment of the relationship. Trump wouldn't do it. Biden came into office doing it. He pulled Patriot missile batteries out of Saudi Arabia when 
Saudis were taking inbound missiles from or Iranian built missiles Correct. coming in from the Houthis terrorists in Yemen. He has, uh, you know, I mean, the whole series of things we don't, you know, I don't know how far you want to get into it. But the point is, Biden has made it clear he's not even going to talk to MBS, only with King Salman. And uh, he is is really downgrading the relationship. At a moment of grave danger with Iran, and at a moment where it looks like the Saudis and Israelis have a pathway right. peace, even 79% of the Saudi people say they now would support normalization with Israel under certain circumstances. That's amazing. Right. And Biden is not pursuing any of it. So it's we are, a, right. Where he, where, he could, where he could put a wind in the sail and even help, and, and even if he wanted to take credit for it, but he's, it's almost as if he's siphoning off the fuel. He, he there's not. Uh, yeah, with one exception, I'll, I'll say I do give credit to Biden in this area for putting pressure on MBS and the Saudis to do far more than they've done in making human rights uh, reforms uh, and civil liberty reforms. Uh, I talk about in Enemies and Allies how much reform has been made. It's it, it, it's really quite amazing, and the media's not reporting how much reform has been made by the Saudis. Uh, and they're not doing it mostly because they're so angry at Khashoggi. The, 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 the media have taken it personally, and one can understand uh, why many of them were friends with Khashoggi. And I quote them in the book, to be fair. So Biden has the Saudis' attention. And the Saudis have, have released some prisoners human rights uh, violators uh, in, in their views. Uh, they've released some of these folks, but there's a lot more that could be done. And, and Biden is right to push for this, but I think he's wrong to, to, um, to make it seem like the Saudis aren't an ally. They're an ally. They're a flawed ally. It's a complicated relationship. And, but compare it. Uh, you'll, you'll understand this, and I think a lot of your listeners will too. Compare it to how Biden is handling Turkey. Turkey has thrown 250,000 people into prison, and you don't hear a peep out of the Biden administration about we're not going to, you know, we're not going to sell them weapon systems, we're not going to help them. I mean, there's been, you know, it's not like warm and cozy between Biden and Erdogan, but you don't, you don't see anything. I mean, a quarter of a million people, and and the Biden administration is trying to get back into a deal with Iran. Uh, a nuclear deal, even though the new president of Iran, um, Ibrahim Raisi, is on American sanctions, economic sanctions against him because he's been involved in the murder of 30,000 Iranian. Iranian citizens. Yeah. So the Khashoggi murder was horrible and there need to be consequences, but it doesn't make any sense at all well. the way Biden is treating the Saudis compared to the way he's treating Iran, an enemy, or Turkey, or Turkey. Well, when you say that, I, I, I don't want to go too too far afield. But when you say that, I'm thinking also of how um, President Obama dealt with Egypt. There, there are very few places in the Middle East that we can say are true liberal-ish in, in a Western democratic style. Israel is one of them. Maybe, right. Okay, maybe the only. Maybe, I, maybe the only. I mean, okay. If you're talking about democracy, um, in terms of true liberal raucous and right. free for all democracy, we're it. We're you know, it. And, and 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 Obama 
was the one who threw um, President Mubarak. Mubarak under the bus. And that triggered the, the what, what, thank God, it seems like it's back on track. But Egypt is still a flawed ally. Egypt is a, I mean, I, I think that the president, I don't know if we have time to speak about it, seems like he's doing a really great job rebuilding the country. And that's that's laudable, and it's something that we want as Israelis that they should that they should be successful. But it's this it's this perspective in the West of view the countries how you want them to be, then then not just how they are, but also what's practical in the middle in the Middle East because we are a tribal region. You're yeah. absolutely right, Jonathan, and I think that it's it's always complicated for um, any American president to balance national security objectives and national interest objectives with human rights. Um, And in two cases, we've seen Democrat presidents, and I'm not being partisan, I'm just saying it happened to be, uh, and and there are some reasons for it, but the two American Democratic presidents decided to elevate human rights over almost every other consideration, American national interests, American national security, President Carter, famously in Iran, when he threw uh, the Shah of Iran essentially under the bus, and what did we get? He was pushing uh, the Shah very hard on human rights. The human uh, the Shah was uh, making serious violations of human rights. Yes, we did need to address it, but by elevating the human rights above all other considerations, the Shah fell, and who emerged? the worst human rights violator in the history of the Middle East, at least since, you know, Nebuchadnezzar or, you know, some, you know, somebody, uh, you know, the, the Ayatollah Khomeini and the Islamic Revolution, which has caused bloodshed against almost everybody, certainly against Israelis, all, certainly against the United States, but also against modern Arab states. That was one devastating decision by a Democratic president elevating human rights above all. Yeah. The other is, of course, um, uh President Obama, as you say, by elevating human rights over Mubarak's uh, faithfulness as an ally in a yes. very tough region and not yes. finding a way to, to balance all that, right. what did we get? We got the Muslim Brotherhood, correct? the original radical Islamist terror movement, which started in Egypt in the 1920s. And as it was the one that inspired Osama bin Laden, who joined the Muslim Brother, who inspired uh, Zawahiri and Zarqawi and all the rest of them, we the Obama Biden administration, Obama and Biden actually elevated the Muslim Brotherhood, Correct. and then got all upset that President El- that, that General Abdel Fattah El Sisi at the time moved in on behalf of the people of Egypt and said no. This is, we are not going under Sharia law. We are not going under this radical view and, and, and removed the Brotherhood from power and became president. Those are two examples of maybe good intentions, right? We, we all care about human rights, but you've got to find a balance and not make the situation worse. And in both case, cases, both presidents made the situation much, much worse. And I, and I make that case in the book. Much, much, much worse. And that's for a, a, a very deep conversation because it fanned out from, uh, from Tunisia and Egypt and, 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 um, still Syria is a, is a big mess as a, as a result. Um, let me add one fun story. Yeah. You were asking some stories. So President Trump was the first president to welcome President El Sisi to Washington for a state visit and said, listen, we have issues. 
but we're going to work our way through on human rights and other issues. But but I want a good, you know, Trump said, I want a good, strong relationship with Egypt. And I believe that Sisi is taking the country in the right direction, even if yes. he's making mistakes. Now, I got invited to a, a, a two-hour off-the-record meeting with President El Sisi at the Four Seasons Hotel in Georgetown Right on that trip. And this is uh, this is the uh, spring of 2017. Okay. Fascinating conversation off the record. So there was about 60 of us. It wasn't just me. Um, Jewish leaders, Christian leaders, uh, mayors, governors, congressmen, so forth. Anyway, it, the idea was, you know, you're not here to report this. You're here to get a better understanding of who this guy is, how he thinks. And so it can help you with your analysis, your coverage and so forth. Okay. Well, anyway, it's a fun story. I, I, I don't know how much time we want to take on it. But afterwards, I went up and I met with President LCC. It's a fascinating conversation. Yes. And I, I, I thanked him for all that he's doing, uh, rescuing the world's largest Arab country from, you know, from the radical Islamist, uh, you know, reign of terror of the brotherhood. And uh, I thanked him for rebuilding all the churches in that were defaced or destroyed or damaged by the brotherhood during the Arab spring and all that terror. I thanked him for reaching out to Jewish leaders. To, to Roman Catholic leaders, to Coptic Orthodox leaders in Egypt. I asked him if he'd ever met with evangelicals. He said, no, I, I don't think I have. I said, well, I'm not being critical. I mean, I'm just curious, but I see you meeting with everybody. So, you know, we're 60 million American evangelicals, uh, 600 million evangelical followers of Jesus in the world. So we're a fairly large group. Um, and I think you'd benefit from getting to know some of our leadership. So I just wanted to plant a seed, Jonathan, right? And I mentioned to him in passing that I had just recently met King Abdullah in Jordan and that the king and I were working on the first name dropping. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) A delegation of evangelical leaders to come and see King Abdullah in Amman. And, and, And again, just planting a seed. But Sisi turns to me and he says, would you be open to bringing a delegation of evangelical leaders to Cairo to meet with me? I said, I would love that. So anyway, he 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 has me meet with all his senior officials, uh, you know, and, and and he says, "Gentlemen, make this happen." Yeah. So we exchange cards. I fly back to Israel. A couple days later, it's Pesach, right? And and I'm I'm having a Passover celebration with our neighbors, and they're like, "Wait a minute, wait a minute! I know you just met the King of Jordan. <laughs> now you've met the President of Egypt, and he wants you asked him if you could bring a delegation of Christians, and he said yes." That's crazy. I said, this is how crazy it is. Imagine a Jewish man standing before the leader of Egypt on the eve of Passover and saying, let my people come. Yeah. <laughs> that's not how the story goes. Oh, so that, that story is in the book. But it's, again, it's, there's an, there, there's our, they are, there are tectonic changes going on in the Middle East. And a lot of people have been so internally focused, certainly in the United States, but elsewhere, and around the world and they're not seeing the winds shifting they're not seeing the ground shifting they're not seeing what huge changes you know Correct. we've gone from two arab israeli peace treaties in the last 40 years right. to six to six and it's extraordinary it all happened in the last 18 months and so this book tells that story and 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 i delve into why yeah and why are moderate arabs Sounding like they're coming out of an Israeli, you know, Likud faction meeting. Right. Uh, meaning MBS said to me on the record, it's in the book, 
that he regards the supreme leader of Iran as the new Hitler. Wow. Now imagine a Saudi leader in charge of Mecca, in charge yep. of Medina, calling a fellow Muslim the new Hitler. Right. He's right. But that sounds more like Bibi Netanyahu or Naftali Bennett. Correct. Or any Israeli leader or Trump even. It doesn't sound like a Muslim leader in the Middle East. And that's the type of change that my book picks up on. And Correct. Tries- I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill, they are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. That's genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. And when you do, you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people. Please join us. So let's just take a little deeper vis-a-vis the Saudis. Um, First of all, I'm glad that you mentioned that the book came out uh, on the 20th anniversary of of September 11th. Um, We are right now within a couple of weeks. I forgot the actual date, but it's right now, 20 years since the Saudis launched their peace plan, which ironically came out right after 9-11, where the majority of the hijackers and terrorists happened to be Saudi. Right. Uh, a, a lot of interesting coincidences there, saying in quotes. Um, but a lot's changed. Now, I, I, I'm old enough. To, I, I'm old enough to remember when President Sadat landed in, in Israel that first time in 1977, glued to my TV in America, waiting for terrorists to open with submachine guns and spray out uh, gunfire at all the the leaders. And and we kind of have that, whether you and I are as adopted Israelis or, um, or, or, or those of us who have grown up a lot of reason for cynicism. um, But so I looked, I looked at the Saudi peace plan 20 years ago as, okay, that's, that's good spin. But there was not really any credible reason, I think, tell me if you think I'm wrong, to, to the, the Saudis really genuinely themselves wanted peace or it was just their place to try and step in and, and do something. But now things have changed um, significantly. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with your analysis that 20 years ago, the Saudi peace initiative, uh, which got adopted by the entire Arab League, so it became right. the Arab peace initiative. But that was um, an effort to change the topic from 15 of the 19 hijackers from 9-11 being Saudis and masterminded by a Saudi 
Osama bin Laden right. to, hey, we're ready to make peace with Israel and all 50 some states of the Islamic Conference and the Arab League and all. We're all ready to make peace with Israel as long as and then, you know, basically Israel gives up everything that's sacred to it. Correct. Jerusalem, uh, the biblical heartland, Judea and Samaria, and makes all kinds of uh, really dangerous and unwise uh, security um, uh, accommodations. 100%. So that was a non-starter, but it did change the topic, and it put the onus suddenly on Israel. Um, and nobody trusted nobody in Israel, and I don't think anybody, certainly in the evangelical movement uh, or you know most pro-Israel Jews, uh, you know, didn't, we didn't believe the Saudis uh, further than we could throw them. Correct. What has changed? What has changed is these are not speeches. What we're watching from MBS and his senior team are sweeping changes, like reform, reform of the country, it, it, all over the country. I mean, letting, you know, making it legal for women to drive. Yeah. Say, Well, that should have happened 50 years ago. Yeah, it should have, but it didn't. <laughs> should have happened 10 years ago. It should have happened, you know, but it's happened now. Women being able to serve in the military, serve in the police forces, women opening businesses, women being able to travel without That's a cool. husband or father or brother giving them permission to even get a passport. Like everything is changing. I mean, it, no, they're not heading to democracy. Don't get me wrong, but uh, they, uh, MBS told us he fired, he's fired 3,500 imams from the mosque who were teaching extremism and wouldn't change 3,500. That's he, he's ripping out all the anti-Semitism, not quite all, but most of the anti-Semitism, anti-Christian language and teachings in the textbooks for the schools. It's, it's been stripped away. More needs to happen. I'm not saying this is, you know, this is Nirvana. I'm saying it's not Mecca. It's not Medina as it were, uh, but, but it's moving in the right direction. And when you watch what the other moderate Arab states are doing, I guarantee you, Jonathan, my, my experience in this region and my experience with this leaders tell me the United Arab Emirates never would have made peace with Israel if it didn't get a green light okay. from the Saudis. Bahrain definitely wouldn't have. Morocco wouldn't have. Sudan wouldn't have. Not that these countries aren't independent and sovereign, but they care what their friends, yeah. Saudi Arabia, think. And the Saudi Arabia is Saudi Arabia is the biggest deal. It's the biggest country. It's not the biggest population. That's Egypt. But Egypt Correct. has already made peace with Israel. Right. And so has Jordan. But the Saudis didn't want to go first, but they're fine with everybody else going because what's happening? What's happening is a whole conversation is going on in Saudi media, on Saudi social media. It's happening in the homes, in the apartments, in the mosques, and there are no churches, so that's a different issue. We've got to, we talked to him about that. That's in the right. book. But the point is, there's a conversation. It's a healthy conversation. 70% of the Saudi people are under the age of 35, okay? That's they don't remember 1948. They don't remember 1956. They don't remember the wars of 1973 right. or, or, or 82 or 81 or, 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 or 90. Or, like, they, these, are, these are young people that don't remember the Arab-Israeli wars. They've been taught about it in school, but they, it's not personal to them. Correct. The 30% that are older than 35, they do remember and they were fed poison for many yes. decades, right? Of anti-Semitic, you know, anti that, that Zionism is racism. Like this was the this was all coming out of Saudi Arabia. Right. And they wouldn't even say Israel. They wouldn't right. even say Israel. Exactly. So 
the MBS, yes, he's he and his father are absolute dictators. They're absolute authoritarian rulers. I, I get it. But but no leader, no king can completely dismiss his people. If he's trying to make all these other positive changes, he wants to do that for the good of his country, for his economy, for all these things. But he also wants to please his people. Sure. Why? Because he watched the Arab Spring and he knows that if if the people really revolt, Mubarak is gone, right? Uh, you know, the, the leaders of all these different countries, they're gone. Like, like you can you can be toppled even if you're, you know, you know, Gaddafi gone. Correct. So he's trying to please his people. And what he has to figure out is it, let's pretend that the Saudi leadership is, I mean, we don't have to pretend. I can say this on the record. They are actively considering whether it's in their national interests to make peace with Israel. Okay. Now, what, now what I meant was let's pretend they've made the decision and they really want to do it. They have to assess whether their people are going to go, wait, what? And, and think that this is a, a bad move because all his other moves domestically have been very positive and very well embraced. Very, so very so they're, they're doing their internal polling, so to speak. I, I believe that they are. And, um, and MBS has been public about how much he loves his metrics. So he is assessing this. Now, with a national conversation going on, because there's a regional conversation going on, well, how is it working with the Emiratis? How is it working with the Bahrainis? Yes. How is it working with the Moroccans and the Sudanese? Who, you know, is this a good thing? Wow, look at all that money that the Emiratis are making with Israel and all these deals. And wow, it seems to be going well. And wow, well, I just wrote this piece for the Jerusalem Post with all these missiles and drones being fired at moderate Arab states, including Saudi Arabia. I just made the case, look, maybe it's time for Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett to quietly, discreetly behind the channels, uh, back channels, Offer to MBS, listen, our technology and your money, we could get a lot of missile defense and drone defense done. Correct. Let's make peace and you can sell to your people. The reason you're making peace is not just for economic it's to, deals. It's actually to protect the Saudi people. I think the Saudis have to be looking for a rationale that isn't just economic. That's important. But, yeah. but they're... They have to have it. Like, why do we have to do this now? And well, that and, might be the the reason. And having stated that uh, the Iranians are the are, are the the new Nazis, and the Iranians are Shia, and the 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 uh, Saudis are Sunni, and they happen to be the guardians of all of the Islamic holy sites in Mecca and Medina, um, they're they're pretty proud and wanting to preserve that. Um, so so if that's it. That's a relatively easy sell, albeit in the context of of uh, huge shifts that don't take place so fast in, here in the I, Middle I, East. I, I don't know if it's an easy sell. I, I think it, it's it, – I wrote the piece for the Jerusalem Post, and, of course, we published it on all Israel News as well, because I think it's it, – it, because I've been watching this thing. What is it that the Saudis can tell their people – that this yeah. is why we're doing it now, not like 10 years from now. Right. Why now? And with the Biden administration pulling missile defenses out of Saudi yes. Arabia, this gives Israel an opening. But more importantly, I think it gives the Saudis an opening. But I, you know, I'm not a Saudi, clearly. And I don't, 
I don't have enough experience to to sift down and say, what is that 30% of the the intelligentsia and the business class and the clerical class and the government class? You know, not the young people. I don't think, I think the young people would like, let's do it. I don't have any personal animus against Jews or against Israel, but the older generation, and these are the people with the money and with the power, not as much as MBS, but they still, they're movers and shakers. What do they need to hear and how would they respond? And I don't know the answer, but I'm watching closely. And I think, I think that this is a great opportunity for Bennett and Lapid. Yes. And I think it's a great opportunity for Biden. And even though I disagree with Biden on almost every domestic policy that I can think of, from life to marriage to taxes and spending and the border and everything, I believe that Biden loves Israel. I, That's and a very I important statement. That he is a Zionist. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think his judgment in the Middle East has been good over the years. And I describe it in the book. Uh, things, decisions that he's made that have been good, like funding the Iron Dome. It was the Obama administration with Biden that funded the original Iron Dome system that's protected my life and yours. Yes. Um, so that's a good thing. And, and anybody that does something good uh, should get credit. The Bible yeah. says give honor where honor is due. And that's a challenge. If you go into straight partisanship, you're like, ah, the guy's a loser. I don't, you know, but I'm trying to call the balls and strikes fairly. So all that to say, I think Biden, the only chance I see him getting a, a, a major foreign policy win is not to reverse his position on Saudi, but to use his position. He's got their attention. I, I need, he should say to the MBS quietly, I need human rights to get better. I need people being released. I need, you don't have to do it today, but I need to start seeing it happen. And simultaneously, I will help broker this deal with Israel and, and let's do it to help the Palestinians too. We'll figure out ways to, to make the life of Palestinians better. They're not, the Palestinian leadership is not ready for peace, but the people need help and the Saudis can help. And, uh, I think it's a great win, win, win. Um, and I think it's it's the only foreign policy success that I can even imagine at the moment Biden getting. You said that and I very think well. It, it would be amazing, and let's 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 encourage him to do it. Let's encourage. So, if you haven't whispered that to the, uh, the enough of the right people, we'll make sure that they get a copy of this podcast and play at the White House. You know, you mentioned the Palestinians, and and I wanted to to pivot. I want to talk about Iran a, a little bit, but one of the things that's that's clear in your book and clear among most evangelicals is that there's not support for the creation of a Palestinian state. And, and until recently, that's been a pillar of anyone wanting to make peace or establish relations. And, and the Abraham Accords kind of blew that out of the water. You have four countries who established either made peace and or normalized relationships without, without it, the necessary pillar of, of creating a Palestinian state. Yeah, help and move and, and, and that's all fine. But when you go in and have these conversations with King Abdallah, with the president of, of Egypt, with the crown princes of the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia, and you, and you tell them, you know, we, we, we don't particularly support the creation of a Palestinian state. How does that fly? Well, it's interesting. Uh, let me parse that out with, to answer a couple 
sort of lightning round questions within your overall okay. question. Number one, all of these Arab and Muslim countries, because we should add Kosovo, also Muslim, but not Arab, yes. that normalized peace uh, with Israel under the Trump administration. So that was pretty cool, too. They, 100% of them all want and all support publicly and privately a Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as the capital. They've, they're not... They're not wavering off of the Arab peace initiative of 20 years ago. That's what they want. What they've decided, so that's number one. Number two, what they've decided is, oh my gosh, when I look at Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, the man serving the 17th year of yeah. his four-year term, and he has no intent of going anywhere. Right. He doesn't want elections. He doesn't want reform. He's corrupt. And these and the Israelis keep offering peace deals over the years, some much more generous than I would be supportive of. <laughs> uh, some, you know, that are like, you know, all right, in the ballpark. Um, I thought the Trump administration plan was was very creative. Yes. I had some problems with it, but it was all very interesting. It doesn't matter. The Palestinians are, don't want any of it, the leadership. Right. right. And, this, and, the, and the Arab countries are saying, listen, we have our own national interests. And one of them is Iran is the big threat, not Israel. The Palestinian leadership has no interest in making peace. So we can't base our entire foreign policy in the region based on a group of people that don't want to make peace, no matter what you offer them. Uh, the biggest offer, biggest, most generous offer ever by an Israeli prime minister was Ehud Olmert in 2008. Yes. And I've sat down and interviewed Olmert for, the, uh, for All Israel News in a fascinating conversation. And he told me, look, my offer was the high water mark. The Palestinian leadership is never going to get as much as I offered them. And he said, I, 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 I told the boss, take this. This is it. This is the best. You know, you're not going to get more. It doesn't matter. So all these Arab countries have decided we still want a Palestinian state, but we're not going to hijack or, or take hostage our entire, all the rest of our national interests. We're going to make peace with Israel. We're going to do business with Israel. We're going to build security ties with Israel. We're going to keep pushing to, to help the Palestinians and Israelis get to some good resolution, but we're not going to hinge the entire thing on it. Okay. Now, the Saudis, one last thing, is the Saudis are holding on so far. They're still saying we are not going to normalize unless there's a Palestinian state. But they are going to have to come, you know, I, I was going to use a phrase that's more American and even juggle. They're going to have to have a come to Jesus moment. <laughs> I, I, I was actually going to use a different phrase. I was going to say Jesus is going to come back before the Palestinians are going to be ready for peace. Well, that would be wonderful. Uh, yeah, amen to that. that. That's funny hearing coming from an Orthodox Jewish man who doesn't uh, see Jesus the way I do. But bless your heart. But yeah, the, the come to in, in, in Geel, Jesus, of course, is very revered. Uh, the highest prophet, actually higher than Muhammad, and his name is Isa. That's how they say it. So it's a come to Isa moment. They have yeah. the Saudis have to des- decide. That's right. In their own national interests, is peace, normalization, economic ties, security ties with Israel more important than waiting forever for uh, the Palestinian leadership to to warm towards peace and. You know, I can't answer that question. We're going to watch to see. But my, if I had to make a guess, my guess, Jonathan, is that the Saudis are going to conclude what Egypt concluded, what Jordan concluded, what the UAE concluded, what Bahrain concluded, what Sudan concluded, what Morocco concluded, what Kosovo concluded, which is we are not waiting anymore. 
we but we don't have a, you don't have the crystal ball to tell us when. I no, I don't. I I think there's so many factors right now, yes. but I think the, the the darkening situation with Iran yes. and the, the missile and, and and drone situation p- could make the situation more conducive. And yes. in fact, I would argue also, and I've said this to senior Saudi officials, if the Biden team doesn't want to play, I think the Saudis and Israelis should make the deal anyway. Yes. Why? You know, we need each other. Correct. We, it didn't used to be that we needed each other. Nope. We need each other. And what's happening uh, under Biden is the evacuation of the United States, the world's leading superpower, only superpower, from the Middle East. Correct. The surrender of Afghanistan to the Taliban was, was probably the other major element that didn't make it into the book because it happened after, you know, just as the book was coming yes. out. But it, but to surrender a country to a radical terror regime when you've already won it, and to do it just because you just everyone told you don't pull the Jenga stick out of the game, it'll all collapse, <laughs> and you just do it anyway, sent a terrible message to all of Israel's allies, including Israel, and and to all of our enemies. The message was. You can't trust Biden. He doesn't know what he's doing. Sure, he's been in Washington for 50 years, but he thinks he knows what he's doing, but he doesn't. Correct. And and therefore, what what many leaders in this region are concluding is that Biden is a nice guy, no question. But he is a combination of incompetence matched with hubris. He thinks he knows what he's doing, and therefore he has great confidence in himself. Sure. But doesn't know what he's doing in terms of the Middle East, and therefore he's incredibly dangerous. And therefore, this is this could be what draws us and the Saudis and other Arab countries together, just like a president. The president was the last time Biden was in office, and Obama was the president, and he yes. was the president. Uh, that, that's correct. The betrayal of Israel and the moderate Arab states by secretly starting negotiations with Iran and not telling the allies, and then creating a terrible, dangerous deal that, as Netanyahu famously said, didn't stop Iran's path to the bomb, but paved it, it. and then gave $150 billion to the Iranian regime for nothing, this is actually the piece that started to draw the modern Arab states and Israel together. That's right. got scared by American incompetence and retreat. I, I always say that is the, uh, the the only positive aspect of Obama's legacy here in the Middle East, that, uh, that that the Israel and these moderate Arab states have come together. And now, and the piece just to add on to uh, what you're saying about Afghanistan, is that now the Saudis and others see almost like the Obama administration wanting to run for a deal with the Iranians, almost like b- before the whole supply chain thing in America, where you could actually go into a uh, a, a, a car dealership and drive off with the car that you weren't getting uh, p- paying double price or, or or something like that. But you know the old the old line. What do we need to do to get you to drive off the lot with the car today? I feel like the Obama administration just wants to make the deal. What do we need to do? And 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 people care about that. So let's yes, move right. to the people, Iranians. And the people, here, the leadership of the Middle East, Israeli and Arab, they can smell desperation, and and so can the Iranians. 
and they smell desperation coming out of the, the Biden administration. And so um, it, 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 it puts Iran in the position of thinking the most dangerous thought. What if we don't make a deal at all with Biden? And what if we just break out and go get the bomb? Yeah. Is he going to stop us? Correct. Who's going to stop us? And that's why the Arab states feel so vulnerable. At least Israel spent the last 25 years building the most advanced missile and uh, drone defense systems in the world. And it's layered, right? You've got Arrow, you've got David Sling, you've got Iron Dome, you've got the Patriot. The Arab states don't have much. The, they don't have their own systems for sure. And, and the systems they do have are being pulled out Correct. by Biden. So, so this is an urgent task, an urgent moment, and it's an incredibly dangerous moment. Uh, but, I, but I think it, it comes with a potential silver lining. Now, I'm a Russian Jew on my father's side, so I'm, an, I'm a pessimist by nature. Now, my, my, uh, my biblical, my love of the Bible and of the Lord and, of, you know, and looking at history, God is very merciful, and I, that gives me hope. <laughs> but I'm just so I, my hope is that the leaders in this region will have, you know, will see the danger and come together. But I can also see this thing, you know, I can see this thing being blown apart and I'll just wrap up that section. And unfortunately in a few moments, I I need to wrap up the the interview. I'm loving this, but Biden's weakness in Afghanistan alone has had three dangerous effects. It's not just that Iran is, trying to weigh, should we just go break out and get the bomb? Maybe the Israelis strike, or but maybe Biden holds them back, right? So the, Israel, the Iranians are thinking actively, maybe we should just break out. Putin, who I write about in the book, Vladimir Putin is thinking, maybe I just go take Ukraine. I want it. Maybe I take half of it. Maybe. Who's going to stop me? Correct. Biden can huff and puff, but he can't blow my house down. So and the Chinese are simultaneously thinking, maybe we just go get Taiwan. That's right. Who's going to stop us? Biden? The right. man can't even make it through the day. Like, like it's a, it, our, the North Koreans are being eerily and chillingly quiet. <laughs> but I would say the three of our four worst enemies, Iran, Russia, China, are actively probing and testing and it's just, uh, I mean, it's good for a thriller writer to <laughs> about all these scenarios. Not the Chinese one yet. I, I got to work on that. Um, it, it, it's, it's good for journalism. It's not good for the world. It's not good for Israel. It's not good for the world. It's not good for Israel. And, and maybe just to, to wrap it up, you and I live, I mean, you, you much more central, but me just a couple of miles to your south. The, the Iranian issue is, is for us an existential issue, right? One bomb, the, the Iranians call Israel one bomb country and one bomb. And you and I don't look so good the next day. Um, right. If at all. So what it, it's now February, 2022. Anything can change tomorrow, next week, next month. And, and, and they do change that quickly. What, what are the three, you, you wrote about this and I want to encourage, maybe we'll post it in the speakers, in, in, in the notes for the show, your article so people can read the in depth, but kind of on one foot, what are the three things that we need to look at in the Middle East, Israel, the Saudis with the Iranians, wherever you want to go with it for, for, for this year? Well, it's, 
the challenge is boiling it down. But number one, I would watch the, the Israeli-Saudi axis. That's the, that's the axis I'm looking at most closely um, because I think that would, you know, it would be such a huge breakthrough. Um, and it would, it, would send a, it would send shockwaves through Iran's leadership because you'd be like, uh, you know, because the Iranians are trying to sow everything they can to keep Israel and the Arabs apart. They're horrified by peace between Israel and the moderate Arabs because it, 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 it building it, they know it's building an alliance, a Middle East NATO against them. Yeah. So we got to keep watching that. Maybe the broader te- uh, topic of that is the, the building of a Middle East NATO. Um, that's number one. Uh, number two, um, I think that there are two people who I'm watching their health very closely. Okay. Uh, President Biden is one of them. Okay. Very possible. I'm not predicting it. I'm not, you know, I'm praying that he's healthy and God's merciful to him. But, but we've seen enough trouble uh, with him that, that if he becomes incapacitated or, you know, God, you know, God forbid, just passes away. The only thing worse than a Biden administration at this stage is a Harris administration who has absolutely no experience in this. And we don't even know who she is. Right. So it's very dangerous. In fact, in, in some way, I, I was having dinner in New York a few weeks ago and a, and a vo- very high senior advisor to a to a, a former senior Israeli official said to me, I think Harris might be uh, insurance for Biden. Like, they don't want, nobody wants to impeach Biden because, oh my gosh, you're going to get Harris. Okay. So I'm watching Biden's health very closely, but I'm also watching the health of the supreme leader of Iran. He's getting up there. He's not well. I would add Mahmoud Abbas to that, but it's not a strategic issue. Correct. It is an issue because if, because if there's a big civil war after the death of Abbas for control, then that would be a problem for you and for me because we're right on the scene. Right. Uh, we're a little bit over the scene. Uh, so the health of those three guys are important. The third thing I would say is um, I think I'm watching to see evangelical Jewish relations um, this year. I think that uh, there is a lot of opportunity for growth and opportunity. We need each other. We obviously have a fundamental theological difference, right? And it comes from the, you know, your hometown there, which is, you know, is Jesus the son of David? Is Jesus Yeshua? Is he the Messiah or isn't he? And that's a big deal, right? It, 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 it is a big people. deal. And, and one of the things I think it's important, both for my Muslim evangelical relationships is, as well as my Jewish evangelical relationships, is can you be friends with each other and have good, robust, healthy dialogue on all the things you agree with without getting freaked out that you actually all, we all really have strong opinions and beliefs and I don't believe in fuzzing those differences. I don't believe in saying that those don't matter. They do right. matter. Um, and, and, and I think in the old days, my perception of interfaith dialogue to me was often, not always, but often code for let's just pretend none of this matters. Yes, and have a model Passover Seder. Yeah, I, I <laughs> totally don't agree with that. Look, there's a lot of people that will, you know, Jewish people, the more religious one is, especially here in Israel, the more you're going to disagree with me, but it might become like, a, I'm not going to even meet with Joel. I would understand that. I don't want that to be the case. But I think there's so much danger and so much opportunity for us to work together on the things that we do agree on, evangelical, 
Jewish, and Muslim, without fudging the differences and without acting like they don't matter, but still saying, let's have those conversations, but but we need each other. And so let's talk about what we agree on so we can help each other. And when we see, you know, someone like Whoopi Goldberg making such horrific and horrendous statements about the Holocaust, evangelicals need to stand up and say, that's wrong. Yes. That is not acceptable. Uh, when um, when Amnesty International yeah. puts out a declaration of war against the legitimacy and the sovereignty of the state of Israel, to me, that's a demonic declaration of war. And evangelicals need to stand up and say, that's wrong. I wrote a piece for All Israel News the day we were, right, we were talking, listing the seven specific things that that evangelicals need to know about why Israel is not an apartheid state. Right. We don't have time to get into it all, but my point is we need each other. And, and in the old days, not that all, not that, not that long ago. In fact, you and I know people were like, I, I, I'm not going to, you know, Christians who wouldn't meet with you unless they were like, you have to convert right now. Like I, like I'm not meeting with you unless, you know, and you're like, Whoa, Whoa. And those in the Orthodox Jewish or often much more ultra Orthodox who say, I'm not dealing with Joel. Joel believes Jews need Jesus. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Will that break down my ability to be friendly? I hope not. I don't think my character shows that. No. But if somebody says that's a red line for me, I can't, I can't deal with it. I certainly understand. But we need each other more than ever. I, I agree with you 100% on that. And as the Orthodox Jew who who builds bridges outside the box and is often a lightning rod from other Jews <laughs> for the kinds of things that I'm doing. Um, I, I agree with you. So I, and I, and I will conclude in praying, of course, that, that, uh, th- that we see in 22 and beyond that we'll continue to, to lay that foundation and, and, and more and people understand why we need each other. And we, and we actualize that. Um, Here, Joel, one last, just a super yeah. fast comment. I just, you and I, when we were sitting on your uh, your balcony there, uh, looking at the view that you're, that's behind you, um, we talked about how we're in such a tribal time yes. that people in our tribes accuse us of betraying our tribe, accusing our, uh, betraying our beliefs, our core values, if we build friendships and have dialogue and even work on projects with people who don't share all of our core views. And I just don't, I just don't see it. I mean, uh, but that idea of betraying your tribe as opposed to, no, I'm representing my tribe, but I, I'm trying to love my neighbor. Isn't that what the Tanakh tells us? Isn't that what Yeshua tells us? Like, love your neighbor. Like, no, they're not your neighbor. They're your enemy. Okay. Well, then we're supposed to love our enemy too. Ah, come on. You know, so I think that's, that issue of tribal warfare, I think is a big issue. And I'm so grateful for you, Jonathan. And there are many like you. I mean, you're not unique, but you are special to me because this is a core value of yours, which is I don't have to agree with everybody, but I want to build these friendships and alliances. Agree with you. I agree with you 100% on that, Joel. <laughs> um, thank you, Joel. This has been insightful. I appreciate the time. Oh, I'm so fine. glad we did it. I, I reserve the right to, to find a time that we can do round two. Um, but right now, I, I'm so grateful. Let me let me just wrap up uh, with, with actually something that I made an ex- executive decision while you were speaking. Um, th- I've been I've been giving away uh, a book for people 
who are um, liking and following and sharing this uh, podcast on our social media. I, I draw one at random. We started that last month. Um, I call it From Jonathan's Bookshelf. So today I'm making the commitment that this month, everyone who listens to this podcast and all of the podcasts that we have this month and like and share is going to be entered for a, a drawing for a, a, a copy of your book, Enemies and Allies. It's very important. And I want to, and I want to get that out there and I want people to, to share this message. Um, I, I want to just take a moment, Joel, to, um, thank our uh, podcast sponsors, the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. Someone's got to be in the area who needs something from a greenhouse. So I always say go in and get it from them. But if you're in the area as I plan to be next month and just want to go say hi and thank you for helping sponsor programs and conversations like this, please do that. And thank you for the coin family for their meaningful sponsorship. All of our programs, the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help consider to, to continue the dialogue and build bridges. And if anyone listening would like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion, please be in touch with us at Genesis 123, oh, excuse me, inspiration from Zion at gmail.com. Um, please do share this uh, program, especially this with others who will find it of interest and need to hear about this message from Joel and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations and unique topics related to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings here uh, to you from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you. Amen. Amen. Amen.